Oh, don't you love those words? Oh, we are reveling in the truth of that glory this morning as we look into the Word of God from none other than an Old Testament prophet. Looking this morning into what might feel like a cryptic reference, one that probably doesn't immediately come to mind when you think about Easter Sunday, the book of Isaiah. Now, some of you are thinking, hmm, why couldn't he have just chosen, you know, Luke 24 or John 20 or one of those well-known resurrection narratives and just gone with what everyone would anticipate that he's going to go with. No, no, no. He has to pull something out of Isaiah to talk about the resurrection. Or why couldn't we just talk about Paul's writings, right? I mean, Romans chapter 8 or 1 Corinthians 15, some of those classic passages that we, many of us in here know and love. Well, I actually believe that to understand the gospel narrative and resurrection in the gospels and to get the importance of the resurrection as unpacked in Paul's letters, you have to go back in the story. And you begin to see that the Bible's been telling us this thing about resurrection for a long time. And the saints of the Old Testament, thousands of years removed from us, were looking forward to a day that we celebrate. And we look forward to a day where Christ will turn and the fullness of what it is that has accomplished at the resurrection, we will receive completely. One of the reasons to look at Isaiah is the fact that it, well, it has all that you want in a great story. In fact, one of the famous Hebrew scholars put it this way, that there's no book that more clearly reveals the holiness and the love of God. Combined with the problem of sin and the reality of judgment but also bringing in the promise of an atoning sacrifice and the fullness of a certain salvation. In other words, there is a happily ever after ending. But there's a lot of tragedy all mixed in. Every good story has got to have some of that. A protagonist, an antagonist, a plot line, a crisis... And ultimately a resolution. Isaiah has it all. That's why Kenneth Boas says it's a little Bible within the Bible. It tells us the whole story of redemption with just within its pages of prophecy. I think this is also part of the reason that Leland Riken turns to the book of Isaiah when he wants to think about Christ. Because he says in a sense it's the Gospels of the Old Testament. It's the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John of the Old Testament because no prophet talks more about Jesus than Isaiah. You want me to prove it? Where do we turn in Christmas time? Just a few months ago, well, we turned to Isaiah chapter 9. We read a verse like, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Or Isaiah 11, 
There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. A branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Or Isaiah 40, a voice cries in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God, that the glory of the Lord shall be revealed in all flesh, shall see it together. But it's not just at Christmas time that we turn to look at these prophecies of old with regards to the birth of Jesus. We also, well, less than 48 hours ago, on Friday evening turned to Isaiah. It was Isaiah 53. It teaches us about the death of Jesus. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his stripes we are healed. Now if we can turn to Isaiah at Christmas. And we can turn to Isaiah at Good Friday. Can we not turn to Isaiah on Easter morning and also find that the full sweep of the Messiah's prophecies are found birth, death, and yes, victory and resurrection. Indeed, that's what we find right here in the beautiful portrait that's given to us in Isaiah 25. Let's give our attention to just these few verses in this glorious prophecy. Look with me. Isaiah chapter 25 beginning in verse 6. On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all his people a feast of rich food. A feast of well-aged wine. Of rich food full of marrow of aged wine well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain. The covering that is cast over all peoples. The veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And he will remove the reproach of his people. For the Lord has spoken. And it will be said on that day. Behold. This is our God. We have waited for Him that He might save us. This is our God. We have waited for Him. Let us be glad and rejoice in salvation. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, as we take a few minutes here in your word over this glorious prophecy given from your servant of old Isaiah, we pray that it would be fresh and new even as the moment you spoke it, even as if this was the very first resurrection morn. Deepen our understanding of who Jesus is. Expand our abilities to receive your grace. And help us to experience the satisfaction and the contentment and the joy that comes with knowing the power of your resurrection. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I can only imagine that for a number of you in this room, you've been busy over the last 24 hours or so. Getting homes clean and 
decorated and we're getting food ready for Easter dinner. It was a lot of fun yesterday putting in the morning this wonderful pork shoulder on my grill. Rubbing all the spices around it. You know what I'm talking about, Mike. I can see Mike, he's already eaten it in his mind up here on the front row. We put it on the grill low and slow all day. And then yesterday evening to opened up the lid. And you, you could already see it was going to be good because the, the bone in the middle was separating from the meat. And you just take the bone and you just pull it out. Butter, meat together, glorious. Easter's going to taste good at the Sheridan house today. I'm really excited about that. I know you wished you were coming to my house for Easter dinner. I want to tell you about an Easter dinner that God has prepared for you. So much so that it would put to shame in every way, shape, and form that glorious pork shoulder that I've got waiting at home. I want you to see the meal that God has from all eternity been crafting in heaven for you. I want you to see what he's making. I want you to see how he made it. And I want by God's grace for you to taste it. In the sweetness of his glory this morning in the resurrection. We're going to look here at Isaiah 25 in just just three ways this morning. I want you to to keep these three things in mind as we walk through this passage. I want you to think first about the meal that Jesus has made for us. And then I want you to think secondly of the meal that Jesus has already eaten for us. And then I want you to think thirdly of the meal that we will one day eat with Jesus. Those are the three things I want you to think about. Kind of hold in your head and your heart as we work through these few verses together. Let's look first at the meal that Jesus is making for us. Now, if you're going to have a great meal, it's pretty important that you have the right ambiance. You have the right context to be able to enjoy that meal. You know, atmosphere is is half the joy of relishing in a delicacy like the meal that will be before us. Where is the meal going to be served according to Isaiah 25, the meal that Jesus is preparing for us, where he tells us right there in verse 6, it's going to be on a mountain. I don't know if there's a better place to eat a glorious meal than on a mountain looking out at a vista. I know for me, I've had the privilege on a number of occasions hiking in East Tennessee and hiking out west to sit on the edge of a mountain cliff and enjoy a meal together. Granted, it was normally peanut butter and jelly. It was not something amazing, but just the atmosphere itself made the peanut butter and jelly better than it was because the atmosphere was so remarkable. The mountain that's being described here, though, is not a hill in East Tennessee or in the Colorado Rockies. We're talking about a mountain of epic proportions. He describes this mountain at the end of Isaiah 24 and describes it as the Mount of Zion. 
In the Old Testament, this was a reference to Jerusalem itself and then even to the Temple Mount, the place where the temple rested, which was on a high knoll there in Jerusalem. There in the midst of God's people, a rising happened. And it was in that rising where the Holy of Holies said, and it was in the Holy of Holies upon the mercy seat where the throne of God was and where the Shekinah glory, the glory cloud of God, would come down and dwell among His people. Historically, when the people of Israel were reading and hearing the prophecy of Isaiah, that's what they had in mind. They were thinking of the beauties and the glories of the temple and they were thinking of the history of the dwelling of God and His power among His people. But you know, that language is not just merely historical. The Bible uses it in all kinds of ways. One of its primary ways of using it is figurative. It pictures for us the reign of God and His kingdom. The writer of Hebrews tells us in chapter 12 that those who have received Christ by faith have come in to the new Jerusalem. They have come in to the holy of holies that we too experience as it were a taste of Mount Zion. What it's like to be in the ruling and reigning presence of Almighty God. It's here where the presence of God and His power is most known. That he begins to spread this banquet. Now if you're going to have a great setting like that. With a great meal. You're going to want to know who's going to be there. What's the guest list like? At the supper that's being described here in Isaiah 25. Well that's told us too here in verse 6. He says all peoples will be, re- will be represented at this banquet. All peoples. Will be there. Now, when you hear that, maybe in the back of your mind you think, well, some people, I'd be okay if they weren't there. Um, Some people make me lose my appetite for a meal like this. I'm not sure I want. Want certain people there? Are they gonna? Are they gonna be there too? Some of you may be thinking, it's all peoples. That's a lot of people. Not so much for crowds. One of those introverted types. Um, Don't worry about that. That's not the point of all peoples here. His point's much richer and deeper than that. John tells us in Revelation chapter 5 what Isaiah is alluding to here. It's not all people as in every single person, but all peoples. All people groups. Revelation 5 says that on the great day of redemption and the fullness of Christ's return, every people from every kindred, tribe, tongue, and nation will be represented, which means that there's not a certain pedigree that you have to have to get into the kingdom of God. There's not a certain color of skin that you got to be wearing to get into the kingdom of God. You don't have to graduate from that school. You don't have to live in that neighborhood. You don't have to have that quality of bank account. But that it's all peoples. The invitation goes out globally to all of the people. Not everybody responds, but everybody's invited. It's gone out to all peoples over the whole of the earth. It's particularly going out to those who know that they need an invitation. Who know that they could... Not by their own strength or merit or way, muscle their ways in to the banquet of Mount Zion. In fact, 
the more you're aware of how undeserving you are to be invited to this banquet, the more fit you are to enter this banquet. The point here being, we go into the highways and the byways. We go to everyone in whom is hungry and thirsty and who has found that there is not satisfaction here, but looks for it somewhere else. It's that person in whom this invitation is even most specifically geared. We know this because Isaiah later, as he's talking about this banquet, you know what he says? He says, come all of you who are thirsty. Come to the waters, all of you who have no money. Come and buy and eat. Come and buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Remarkably, it's the greatest banquet environment. It's all people's a global invitation and it costs them nothing to be there. It's unbelievable. It's, it is in our mind too good to be true. We're not done yet. If you're going to have great food in a great location with all these people, I want to know who's cooking it. Who is the chef for the meal that Isaiah is describing? And we're told this very clearly as well. It is the Lord Himself. It is the Lord Himself. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast. Of well-aged wine. That word Lord. If you've got your Bibles open. Or you're looking along with me. You'll notice it's all capitalized. It's because it's the covenant name of God. It's the name Yahweh. It's the name by which the people of God. Knew and called and recognized. The God who is the God. The only God. The maker of heaven and earth. And the redeemer of all mankind. But it's also described here as the Lord of hosts. And you may be thinking, oh yeah, he's not only the chef, but he's the host. You're thinking right, but it's not exactly the point here. That word host is, is actually referencing the celestial. It's referencing the angelic host. He is Lord over heaven and earth. He is Lord of armies. He's Lord of an army of angelic hosts. He comes, as it were, with a train, this chef, of servants. Of those who do his bidding. He is, even as the NIV tends to translate this phrase, he is Lord Almighty. He is Master Chef and Commander. Thank you. And everyone is under him. And he's come to cook a meal for you. I'd like to know then what's on the menu. If I'm going to sit down at this at this meal, I want to know what's on the menu. And he, he spares us no, no poetic reflection here. He, he gives it all to us in vivid imagery. He says, I want you to know first it's food rich and full of marrow. Meaning it's full of life. It's full of nourishment. It's the kind of food you eat and really sticks to your ribs, as my grandmother used to say. It's full, of, it's full of life. The King James Version, I love the way it puts it. It says, it's a feast with all the fat left in. You know what I did with this pork shoulder? Listen, 
And I rubbed it down with all the spices yesterday and I put it on the grill. I put it with the, the fat layer on top. Because what you want to happen is that, that fat to seep down. Right, Mike? Seep down into the meat. Tenderizing the meat. Flavorizing the meat. Because you don't want it to be dry and flavorless. You want the, the fullness of the marrow, the life. And all of its tastiness to be right there. And what about a nice glass of wine? He's got that too. We're told that he serves a drink with this gloriously rich and full of marrow food. It is an aged wine. It is well refined. This is no two-buck chuck here, okay? This is no discount rack at the wine store. This is God himself going down into the deep cellar to the very back rows of the wine that's been aging for eternity. And he's pulling that bottle out and dusting it off and putting it on the table for you and for me. Friends, are you getting hungry? Does it get any better than this? On a mountain, everyone's invited. Jesus is cooking the best food imaginable, the sweetest, most Deeply flavorable wine that you've ever tasted. It's a picture of what John will tell us in Revelation 19 is the marriage supper of the Lamb. Of the marriage supper of the Lamb. You thought it might have been a wedding supper because that's when you see this kind of language show up. That's when we open up our wallet and we're willing to spend whatever on that kind of rejoicing in a moment of union. We're told in Revelation 19 that's the meal that Isaiah 25 actually has in mind. It's a meal that we see foreshadowed today in the meal that we're going to eat in just a minute. But this meal reflects that meal. This Easter dinner reflects the ultimate Easter dinner. And it's coming. It's coming. Now, the question that I in some ways raised by the analogy a second ago... How does one pay for all this? I said it was free for you, but I didn't say it was free. In fact, it's the most costly meal imaginable. It's just that you don't have to pick up the tab, praise be to God. You see, it's not just the meal that Jesus has made for us. It's the meal that Jesus has has already eaten for us that's alluded to in this passage. There are two things in this passage that we're told the Lord eats. In fact, it moves from the feast that's for all of us to something that he, pronoun he, masculine, singular in the Hebrew, he will consume two things. He's going to swallow two things. And here's what we're told first that he's going to swallow. He's going to swallow the covering that is cast over all peoples. The veil that is spread over all nations. What's he alluding to here? He's alluding to the close of death 
Some of you have had a loved one die and you have had the horrific experience of walking into the room where the cover is laid over them. That's the picture here. He looks out at all of the nations. He sees all the peoples of the earth. And you know what he sees? He sees one huge morgue is what he sees. How many people you know have escaped death? I bet you can name them on one hand. Maybe you don't need any fingers whatsoever. He looks out at all of the earth and what he sees is death clothes. That's what he sees. He sees corpses covered with a sheet. He sees people with veils. That's mourning clothes. He sees funerals. He sees sorrow. He sees sadness. He sees grief. He sees loss. Right next to this image of celebration, that's a picture of the wedding supper of the Lamb, he gives us an image of death, which is the furthest thing imaginable from the beauty of this incredible banquet that's being described. Why? Because he wants to tell us that in order to get us to the banquet of life where the food is rich and full of marrow and where the wine is perfectly aged, Jesus has got to swallow some things for us. Jesus has got to eat the meal that we were supposed to eat. To give us the meal that's intended for him that he gives to us by his grace. He swallows the grave clothes. That is an image to say it disappears. It won't be needed any longer. It's no good anymore. We won't need the dark veils and the dark suits and the dark dresses and the forlorn looks and the funeral processions. Because he has come to kill death by swallowing it himself. And in so doing, establishing the wiping away of every tear. And in so doing, removing the reproach of our life, which is the reproach of death. You know, death is an embarrassment. You know it when you go to a funeral. You know that awkward feeling when you go into the funeral home and you see people averting eyes and shuffling feet and trying to say things that are meaningful that continually fall hollow and feeling in many ways that when we say something it never quite captures what's actually taking place. You know why death is so awkward and embarrassing? It's because we were never meant to experience it. And we, it feels as if there's nothing we can do about it. I remember my grandfather, one of the strongest men that I knew, became a shadow of himself against death. Here's the reality of the picture, my friends. In a hundred years from now, this room is populated with an entirely different group of people. An entirely different group of people. Have you solved the riddle of death yet? Have you? 
You see, this was, this was actually the meal that we were supposed to eat. But the problem is, we can't eat death. Death eats us when we're up against death. How is it that Jesus is able to get down, if we can put it that way, the, gro- the grave clothes and death itself, and, ex- and it'd be gone forever? That's the promises of his prayer. How does that happen? Let me show you how that happens. Jesus in John chapter 4, verse 34, you know what he says? He says this, My food is to do the will of my Father who is in heaven. My food, Jesus' sustenance, is the will of his Father. What that means is whatever his Father put before him, he ate. Whatever it was. And let me tell you, friends, if you read the gospel story, the Father puts before Jesus some pretty terrible tasting things. It doesn't look anything like the meal that he's preparing for you. He puts before Jesus rejection, false accusation, suffering, betrayal. And as these things are put before Jesus, you know what he does? He receives them. He takes them in. Because his will, his meat and his drink, his very sustenance to say yes to whatever it is that the Father puts before him. And he gets, he gets right to the end of the journey. And you know what? We sometimes want to save the best for last, you know, put the dessert aside. Not Father, he saves the worst for last for Jesus. He's been eating his way through the will of the Father as we turn the pages in the gospel. And he gets to the Garden of Gethsemane and he cries out, let this cup pass from me. Let this cup. You realize when Jesus says, let this cup pass from me, it's because, it's because he looked into it. He had a sense for what he was being asked to drink. He looked into it and you know what he saw? He saw his father's wrath and the judgment for the sin of his people in that cup. And he knew the nature of the poison of that content. He knew that he couldn't drink that cup and things remain the same in his relationship to the Father. He knew that the end of this meal was the end of him. And yet he said, not my will, but thy will be done. Fulfilling what he's already said in John chapter 4. Now, how could he say that? Why why did he say that? Why did he just walk away? It's because he and the Father together were dreaming about a future meal with you. And they knew there was no way to get you to that meal unless Jesus ate your meal for you. That you deserve the cup of wrath. You deserve the suffering and affliction. You deserve the betrayal. And Jesus ate his way through on your behalf. And he drank it to the dregs. He threw back his head and he drained the wrath of the Father and the judgment for your sin. And there was no way... That we could ever get to the meal that Isaiah speaks of unless Jesus had been so faithful 
to swallow every ounce of the meal that we deserved. Because for Jesus to do away with death for good, he had to go through death for real. In order for Jesus to do away with death for good, he had to go through death for real. What do I mean? Well, just as death has been having an insatiable appetite for all of humanity throughout human history, it comes to Jesus. And as it swallows Jesus, it chokes on him. It can't get him down. It can't consume him. It can't completely do away with him as it would do away with you and me. What we realize in the gospel story is that when death came to swallow Jesus, it had bit off more than it could chew. And in return, Jesus swallowed it. So much so that the one that had been used to the victory, death, and had written... Already your tombstone into the future. Jesus has now received and abolished death entirely through the power of his own swallowing of it on the cross and in the resurrection. And it's why on the third day, Peter and John went to the tomb and they poked around inside. They saw no Jesus and it was open. What did they see though, friends? You know what they saw? They saw used up, swallowed up grave clothes. Actually, John tells us they were folded quite nicely as if they were never going to be needed again. And you know what we find? We find Mary Magdalene outside the tomb of Jesus weeping because she's wondering who has taken her Lord. And then she hears the voice, Mary, why are you weeping? And it's as if Jesus has already began to wipe every tear from every face. Do you see what Jesus is showing us? Is that as he eats the meal of death on our behalf. It fits him to be the one who makes the meal of redemption on our behalf. And it opens up the opportunity for us to be the people who will eat the meal of redemption with Jesus one day in full glory. As we scoot up around the table to enjoy delicacies of which our palate now is not worthy to even taste. A wine that is set apart only for the heavens. And food that I undoubtedly will love to taste that will be far superior than the Easter dinner that I will share today. The question in this room is, could it have been that you had thought for most of your life that you were going to find your contentment here? Could it be that you've been gorging on all kinds of stuff in this world Thinking, oh, new car, new house, new promotion, new wife, new life. Whatever it is. And you have found yourself, each time you've gotten that new thing, with a thrill of joy that sours in your stomach. Because it never can cash in 
on the satisfaction that your heart really longs for. People live their whole lives pursuing it and they go to their death pursuing it. What are you going to take with you? What are you going to take with you? That's that's a question of this passage. And the hollowness that's right at the very center of our beings is because the world's menu can't satisfy an eternal hunger. Only an eternal hunger can be satisfied by the eternal Savior who makes a meal for you, the meal that is himself. That's the only way imaginable. Friends, one day we are going to gather... I have to take our hearts here. One day we're going to gather, and we're going to gather maybe in a chapel like this or maybe in a funeral home, and the sheet's going to be over you. It's going to happen. If the Lord tarries, it's going to happen. And you know what? People are going to wear dark suits and dark dresses, and they're going to cry. It is not as if death is gone, even though death is defeated. We wait for the day where death will be gone, but in the midst of it, will we be able to say on the day of your death, Jesus swallowed death for this one because he trusted in Christ, because she trusted In Christ, will we be able to say with tears streaming down our face, grieving with hope, death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. Will we be able to say that with faith? Or will we stare at the ground and shuffle our feet? Being unsure while eternity hangs in the balance. Friends, this is as real as that. If Easter doesn't speak into that reality, it doesn't speak into anything. This is about your mortality and mine. And where we're going to be and if we're going to be together in the presence of Christ. Jesus went to hell and back to make this meal for you and me. And he offers it to you free of charge because he's already paid the bill. All he says to you is come unto me. All who are weary, all who are thirsty, all who are hungry, All who have an appetite that only eternity will feel, come to me and I will give you rest. It would give God, the maker of this meal, such joy and experience for you, such satisfaction and peace. If today you quit piddling around with food that will not satisfy and sit down at the delicacy that is Jesus who will feed you until you want no more.
Let's pray to that end. Father in heaven, open up our hearts today to the reality of this truth. Don't let us fall short in this moment of pastel colors and sunny days and porch shoulders. Don't let us fall short from truly thinking about eternity. This is not simply a great day to take a family picture. Father, this is a day to capture the picture of Christ, Him crucified, and the resurrection, and His rule over all. Would you be merciful to us in this room, who right now know that they need you, Would you open up our hearts together and collectively and embrace you by faith? And with hope, find our satisfaction in you. And with expectation, look forward to the day when we scoot up around the table with you in the heavenly places and we eat a meal for the ages. Bless us in this way we ask it. In Jesus' name. Amen.